Hey everybody, welcome back to In the Agora with Aaron Eves, and I am here with the illustrious Tom Emanuel, who is a dear, dear friend of mine from the Graduate Theological Union. We went to seminary together at two different seminaries, but more or less went to seminary together. And he is currently at the University of Glasgow at the Center for Fantasy and the Fantastic, which is quite a fucking mouthful, studying the intersections of theology and the literature of J.R.R. Tolkien. Tom is somebody who, like I say, I met in seminary, a dearly beloved of mine. We wrote plays together. We had lots of feelings together. And I am very, very excited to have you on today, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, Aaron. Great to be here. Not the first time you and I have sat down on <laughs> either end of a podcast mic. Oh, I- yeah. Oh, yeah, that too. Uh, we did like... Th- 40 episodes or something of a podcast, uh, The Godly Communist slash Incessantly Human. Yeah, we did that too. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks thanks for having me on to, to chat about my work and whatever other you know nonsense arises in the course of it. Yeah, so Tom and I have been talking about doing this episode for a minute, and you know he's over there about to finish his first year over, as I said, at the University of Glasgow back in the motherland. And <laughs> and I love Tolkien. I actually just read Hobbit, uh, The Hobbit the other day for the first time. And having read The Lord of the Rings before, but never had read The Hobbit before. And I'm a big fan of the work and I'm a big fan of Tom's work, whether it's poetry, whether it's novels. And now it's going to be more scholarly work, I imagine. So, yeah, so we've been talking about it for a hot minute and just wanted to get in. And as Tom said, the conversation will go where it goes, but I'm... I'm particularly curious, what are you studying? What are you looking at? Like, how's this dissertation shaping up? What's going on in PhD land? Right. Thanks for the invitation. So I will begin, as I often do, with a story. What else is there but stories? The stories we tell each other, the stories we tell ourselves. So I have been a massive fan of The Lord of the Rings, of The Hobbit, of J.R.R. Tolkien's works, of Middle-earth, for literally longer than I can remember. My dad read The Hobbit to me when I was an infant. I read The Lord of the Rings for myself the first time when I was 10 years old, and I was really interested. I mean, I was, I was in love with these works way before I ever thought about the idea of, let's say, going to seminary or becoming a religious person. They were, you know, part of the architecture of my imagination, a load-bearing wall in the architecture of my imagination for as long Mm. as I can remember. And when I finally did, as an adult, find my way into religion, into progressive Christianity, and eventually into ministry, you know, I, the Lord of the Rings came with me and continued to inform my sense of what it meant to be a a religious person, a spiritual person, a believer, um, a person of faith. And, and, And Tolkien himself was like a devout Roman Catholic, and his faith influenced his work in a lot of really interesting and sort of subtle ways. And so for me, the sense of enchantment 
and wonder and beauty I found in the works really like was something that I brought into Christianity and into ministry. But the thing that, that I found most interesting about them was not that they were Christian novels or Christian fantasy, but that they kind of weren't, right? That a deeply devout Roman Catholic could write these novels, which were simultaneously deeply grounded in his religious identity and his religious vision, but which were totally open to people who didn't share that religious vision or that religious identity. You know, uh, religious pluralism and stories which offer points of access for people who don't share my religious background or one's religious background are really interesting to me. So I decided I was going to spend three and a half years in Scotland seeing if I could work out exactly why and how these stories are able to speak so meaningfully to so many people, and particularly to non-religious people, in a way which we might call spiritual, right? Like, how does, right. how does, how does the Lord of the Rings do theology? It's kind of the question that, that my research seeks to answer. And there's, you know, I could say a lot more about it, but that is kind of the core thing that I want to look at, is how is this story and why is it so so deeply meaningful to me and also to, to so many other people who may not have ever thought of considering themselves a Christian. So first question, best question, <laughs> many first questions. Question, best question. <laughs> a question, it's, pro- it's actually not the best. A question. So we, we know that Tolkien was Catholic, but do we know more granularly because he spoke about it publicly of like, what does that look like? Right. Cause to say someone's Catholic, you know, there's a, a range there from, you know, culturally Catholic, more or less secular all the way to the ecstasy of St. Teresa. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great question. And it's really an important question in my field because to say that Tolkien is Catholic, there are, there's, you know, some Christian commentators who would say he's Catholic. And so that means we can know exactly what he believed because all Catholics obviously believe the same things. And those same things are obviously identical with the doctrine of the Catholic church, all one plus billion of them. That is not my experience of Catholics or of religious people in general. We tend to be, you know, human and contradictory and interesting. And Um, you were, I don't know if the right words were like raised Catholic, but you were raised Catholic, for example. Yeah, my parents were both raised Catholic and deconverted as adults. But when I was born, they found themselves asking, oh, man, what what do we want to do for our kids? And so they sent me and my younger sibling. They took us to church and we did that for 10 years or so. And um, you were and then, were you both baptized and confirmed there? Uh, we were both baptized and we went through, so we had, we were able to take Eucharist. We were never confirmed. That's, that happens when you're a teenager typically. Okay. And so we didn't get quite that far, but I am baptized Catholic. I could take the mass or I could take the Eucharist if I were there to inclined. Uh, out, out of curiosity, are you baptized anywhere else? Uh, no. Interesting. Interesting. I guess no. UCC, which is the denomination that Tom is ordained under UCC. They're not big on baptism, I reckon. Yeah, in the United Church of Christ, it sort of depends on which congregation you're talking about. We don't typically tend to view baptism uh, as like the sort of like transformational event that like 
a lot of like a lot of other Christians do, you know, particularly right. like, you know, Baptists or some other evangelical. And I mean, evangelical in the broad sense, not of like conservative evangelical, just like, you know, groups that are, you know, going to go get dunked in a river. Right. Um, Dog is pretty dope, though, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Christianity needs to get its own head out of its ass and get way more into like the bonkers rituals. We have so many cool ones and we use so few of them. You just sprinkle a little water on a baby's head and call it baptized. And I'm like, no, full of <laughs> I was hanging out with a Baptist recently who's, you know, quite in their faith and going to seminary and. It was just a delight. To, they're like full immersion. If it's not full immersion, like what, what are you even doing? It's like I, I can get behind that. I was never Baptist. I've actually never been baptized, but I can get behind that. <laughs> well, I, I hope you enjoy limbo after you die. You're one of those I, pagans. I've what started. do you mean after I die? Fuck, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Friday. <laughs> How low can you go? <laughs> I'm saying, dog, but for real, on a completely... Uh, I might save this one for after the pod. Oh, man. Maybe I'll save this for after the pod. I'll put a pin in it, though, for right now. There's an anime. I, I never watch anime. There's an anime called Record of Ragnarok. And the fucking premise is that one-on-one, best out of 13 rounds, the humans and the deities fight each other for the fate of humanity. And it's just like Japanese take on this largely like Western deities. And it's a Japanese take on like Ragnarok and greek deities and so on and so forth and i got very it's very good and i got very offended the other day <laughs> pin in that maybe i'll save it for later but anyways J.R.R. tolkien catholicism yes yeah, so has he spoke about it explicitly you know from like i said there's that range from culturally catholic to saint Teresa of avila do we know or do you know i mean you would know if anyone knew yeah so tolkien is an interesting bird. He never made a secret of his Catholicism. He actually, his mother converted to Catholicism when he was a child. And she died when he was quite young, when he was 12. His father died when he was four. Jesus. At the age of 12, he was bereft of both parents. And he carried on his mother's Catholicism through the rest of his life. He was actually Mm. raised his surrogate father after the death of his parents was Father Francis Morgan, who was a Catholic priest at the uh, the Birmingham Oratory in Birmingham, England, not Alabama. Um, and so, uh, so he was brought up Catholic and was super devout all his life. I mean, he would go to Mass every single day if he could get it. He was really into mm. the Eucharist. Like the thing about Tolkien is that he was extremely Catholic, but he also, um, number one, for him, Catholicism was about the sacraments. It was about the experience of taking the elements of the Eucharist, of the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, and about, you know, confession. Like those were the things that were most important to him about being a Catholic, not so much like the correct or incorrect interpretation of scripture or doctrine. And on the other side of that then is that he also was formed by an incredible love and respect for pre-Christian pagan cultures. 
So he was a philologist. His work on the history of the English language looked back into the Middle Ages and beyond that to the so-called Dark Ages. And so a lot of the, the sources that he worked with, things like Beowulf or Sir Gowan and the Green Knight or a lot of old English poetry, preserved traces of these ancient pagan traditions. And so that was what he did in his day job. You know, he was engaging with Europe's indigenous uh, religious past. Okay. Um, and of course, Catholicism is a tradition that also engages with uh, <laughs> Europe's indigenous religious yeah, past in totally. a way that us freaking, you know, disenchanted freaking Protestant postmoderns just don't. Uh, Catholicism has always been a very syncretic religion. It, you know, uh, that was one of the things the Protestant reformers didn't like about it is the fact that it you could believe in like local spirits and, you know, go and get relics or, you know, like sacred water from wells and shit. So <laughs> uh, all of which is to say that in Tolkien's Catholicism was bone deep, but coexisted with an appreciation for non-Christian ways of looking at the world and like particularly non-Christian stories about the world, fairy tales and myths, which I think produces a really interesting effect in his fiction. Yeah, totally. Uh, Does he ever speak like, uh, is he ever on record of speaking about, how would you say about other religions? Like if like their validity, basically. Yeah, he he is. So one of the interesting things about Tolkien is that he doesn't really talk about religion in public. You know, he doesn't make a secret of the fact that he's a Catholic, but he, particularly with regard to his works, I mean, once he becomes a world famous author, he is very careful about not pushing a religious interpretation of his work in public, even if he'll talk about it in private letters. Um, It's Mm -hmm. not something that he tends to want. He doesn't want to collapse the, you know, the universe of meaning. He wants people to be able to take the story at face value. In terms of his relationship to other religions, he believed, I mean, he was like a Christian, like exclusivist in the sense that he believed Christianity was the one true faith. Um, Mm -hmm. And he also believed that humans tell stories as a way of communicating about truth. That, that stories are this method of communication that human beings have, which communicate truths which can't be expressed any other way. I mean, you and I, in our work on you know, the mythic theater and, and writing plays together, have talked about, like, you don't want to just get up and preach, like, at somebody. You want to give them a story that they can get into. The, the actual, like, act of creating a myth or telling a story makes... Uh, allows you to have an experience in a way that simply being told, you know, the, the, be nice to each other or yeah, uh, totally. whatever. Yeah, you get it, you get it. So Tolkien believed that all religious stories had a grain of truth in them somewhere because we're all made in the image and likeness of God. And so the stories that we tell are going to reflect God's story at one level or another. And so all what he would call pagan myths were you know, had some expression of the divine in them, even if they weren't what he considered the one true faith. And so it's, what, it's, 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 it's go, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sort of a random question. Because he was British, would being Catholic, would that have put him, like, would he have been in a religious minority in England? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that plays a role. I mean, England's history since 
the birth of modernity. So since the Protestant Reformation has been, you know, pretty staunchly Anglican or, you know, this in Scotland, they had Presbyterianism. In other parts of England, they had the, the Congregationalists, which are where my UCC people come from. And, and Catholics had long been a religious minority. And at least during the, or, you know, 16, 17, 1800s, had, there had been bouts of anti-Catholic persecution. I mean, the Irish were Catholic and you right. saw what the British did to them. And, and, it, and that was constructed along the idea of, oh, look at these backward, you know, semi-pagan illiterates, right? So that's so fascinating. Like the, the intersection of, quote, Christianity and, quote, paganism. It's just as someone like me that was raised in a basically a sect of seven day Adventism, basically like ang- anglicized Judaism. I don't know. It's just so fascinating. It's like, yeah, it's all pagan. It's pagan all the way down. And it all is like we all come from indigenous traditions. I don't know, but I digress. Yeah. So um, I think that coming from that perspective gives him a really Tolkien the man right so the person in history you know it gives him a really interesting and I think for his time like non-mainstream viewpoint on on things like you know the enchantment of the world or things like sort of the way that religion works and so, so that's Tolkien's, you know, sort of own faith life, right? Like that's you know a brief version of the kind of person he was. And um, remind me and the audience real quick the timeline, like uh, that he was living in the era that he was living in, like when he when was he roughly born and when did he roughly pass? Yeah, so uh, he was born in 1892 and died in 1973. So his life encompassed the sort of the heyday of the English Industrial Revolution mm-hmm. as he watched the countryside where he grew up oh, wow. get bulldozed and turned into factories. He fought in World War I and watched all but one of his closest friends die on the battlefield in World War I. He, you know came of age or you know, sort of came of like scholarly age and wrote a lot of his stories during the interwar period. So between, you know, 1918 and 1939, that's when he wrote and published the Hobbit. So during, you know, sort of the great depression. Um, Man, being so- in England during the world wars, that provides a lot of context too, for like some of the aspects of his writing, like the parts, like the wars and the battles, of course, but some of the bleakness and some of the, like, you're just like trudging across the countryside to go probably die, you know, for your country or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. And and like World War II, like, like England was just like, was ravaged by that. And I, and I don't remember the history of World War One much. Yeah, I mean, it's England didn't get hit as hard in World War One because it's an island, and that fact has always, you know, defended it historically. Right. By World War Two, the, you know, the Germans were able to do a lot of bombing raids over, right. over Great Britain. But I mean, you can't take. It's difficult to extract Tolkien from the time in which he lived. So, Industrial Revolution, destruction of the countryside, you know, World War One, Great Depression. World War Two, and then the birth of the Atomic Age. So the Lord of the Rings yeah. is completed and published, you know, during the early years of the Cold War, as both the USSR and the United States have gotten okay. nuclear power and are threatening to blow the world up over competing uh, mm. ideologies. 
then the Lord of the Rings is published and becomes popular during the, the, the cultural revolution of the 1960s. It becomes popular with like hippies and, and American college students. And the world in which Tolkien dies, I mean, 1973 is, and that's 50 years ago, actually this year, but it's just unrecognizable in a lot of ways from the world he grew up in. As much as that world is unrecognizable to you and me now. Yeah. Um, and so there's this, he's embedded in these incredibly, this mom- gigantic transformations of the modern world. A period during which I think it's important to note that like people's belief in Christianity basically begins to fall off. Um, That's interesting too, yeah. Hmm. Almost as if the confrontation with like, the horrors of industrialized modernity uh, made people start to wonder whether whether the god of their forefathers was uh, real or a, a sky daddy. Um, yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. That's obviously a huge simplification, but it's also not totally wrong. <laughs> right, right. So all of that, you know, it places him in context. It places the Lord of the Rings in context. And then... You know, and then we've had it for almost 70 years now. And it is, you know, you read it fairly recently for the first time. I mean, just a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think we I were, remember you found we were doing one. the podcast, right? It might have been. Yeah, I mean, we... Uh, no, we no, we read Harry Potter during no, the No, we reread Harry Potter, which was a whole thing of its own. Yeah. It was around that time. So last few years, yeah, I read, I just read it, (laughs) all three books just back to back over the course of maybe, gosh, I don't know, three weeks or something. And it was just brilliant. It's just brilliant. And I'd like seen the films and I'd grown up, you know, loving fantasy and being, you know, a product of the Occident and or the accident if you will i <laughs> big D guy you know fantasy guy etc cetera, etc cetera. but I, I just didn't read a lot when i was a kid and and then even as an adult i didn't read fiction a lot until relatively recently but yeah read them the, they can obviously be a slog at times when it's like five pages of like a hillside just describing a hillside it can be a slog at times but a very very worthwhile slog it was brilliant i mean i read the hobbit and a couple of days while traveling recently for a wedding and I was just, you know, I'm cheering. I'm like weeping. I'm, you know, fist pumping in the air. And I mean, it's a lot more accessible. It's a lot more digestible as it was intended to be a more of a kid's book from what I understand. Brilliant. I mean, so, so brilliant. And I'd seen the, and again, I'd seen the films before. So. Yeah. And so out of that, you know, this enormous ferment of the 20th century and all these, you know, sort of social cataclysms and, you know, changing face of religion and, and then Tolkien's own life and his, you know, his faith, you get this book, which, you know, never once mentions God, not in the main text. I think there's a, a single reference to the hmm. God of Middle Earth in the appendices, but nowhere in The Lord of the Rings hmm. is... Uh, they don't even mention God. like deities at all, right? Like there's supernatural critters but like no deities at all right they the valar who are the sort of gods okay. of middle earth okay. are mentioned in passing like twice in the text of the lord of the rings fascinating and Tolkien had this whole cosmology and sort of angelology of course he did <laughs> you know, of course insane. he did <laughs> i mean the, the man 
he wasn't the first fantasy author to do the, the bonkers world building thing, but he was the one to codify it, right? Like the Lord right. of the Rings came out and most people had never read anything like it before. And so, I mean, D&D and the whole, you know, sort of Western fantasy is like the genre of fantasy comes to exist because publishers need to like market things that are like the Lord of the Rings, basically. So, so uh, out of curiosity, what's the, because I assume you know such things. I mean, hell, you're studying such things. What's the cosmological stru- or the theological structure? Like, for example, is it is it monotheistic? Is it panentheistic? So on and so forth. So it's monotheistic in the sense that there is one creator God who, you know, makes the world ex nihilo out of nothing. And, what's the deity's but, name? Does it have a name? Uh, Eru. Eru Iluvatar, one, the Mm. creator. But there are also a lot of subsidiary powers who are called the Valar, or, you know, you could translate that as angels, you could translate it as gods. They kind of fulfill the same kinds of functions that the pantheon of, say, the ancient Norse religion or Greek mythology, right? There's a sea god, Olmo, and there's the wind god, Manwe, and... There's, you know, the goddess of the earth, Yavana, and all of them help God, like, run the world. So there's basically a pagan pantheon with a single monad above I like that. I'm down. Let's go. Let's do it. (laughs) 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 Sounds good. Yeah. Converted. (laughs) I'm into it. I think it's... And it it never comes up in... or. Outside of a couple passing references, it doesn't come up in The Hobbit or the three Lord of the Rings books. No, not, I mean, not at all, really. That all what, about the, until, what about the Silmarillion? So that's where you get it. And the Silmarillion is a funny book because Tolkien is just like me in that he started a million things he never finished. And so the, the Lord of the Rings is basically the only long book you know the hobbit and the lord of the rings are the only novels he published in his lifetime but he had untold thousands of pages of various versions of all these ancient myths and legends and languages and all this stuff that didn't get published until after he died because he was he was a just a rampant perfectionist he could never get it exactly right the way that he wanted it and so his son christopher had to publish or decided to publish this stuff edit it and publish it after his death so the Silmarillion is where you get the cosmology. Chris, people who first read the Lord of the Rings. Was Christopher a philologist as well? Yes, he was trained. He went into the same line of work as his father initially, but basically became a full-time, like his full-time literary executor. Right, right. Because there was so much that, it, I mean, it took him more than 20 years to edit and publish all that stuff. Just, just a vast amount of material. What a, and it seems like he really I, I mean you can you, you'll know way more about this than I do and it seems like he really cares right like some people might approach that and be like oh my dad was an absent intellectual piece of shit but I'm gonna make all this money right like you could see that you know someone that's successful sure. but it seems like because he like he gets mad when <laughs> like when films and whatnot don't turn out the way he likes so presumably he really cares about the material that he like really took the legacy earnestly yeah i mean there's there's a number of good reasons for that one of them is that all indications are that jared Tolkien was a pretty good dad he despite being an oxford professor and 
using all of his spare time to write about hobbits and elves, which his colleagues thought he was insane for. Uh, and <laughs> like, in fairness, yeah, kind of was. Um, bonkers. <laughs> Who does Man. that? Um, and again, <laughs> you got to remember. people. Yeah, no, for real. No shit. You got to remember, too, that they didn't have any frame of reference. They were like, oh, you know, Professor Tolkien? Yeah, he's writing a fantasy novel. They're like, oh, yeah, right. no, I've, I've got a friend who writes, you know, I know fantasy novels. I played D&D when I was a kid. No, they're like, hey, right. did you know that Professor Tolkien spends all of his free time writing about uh, fairies? And they're like, now what he's doing instead of finishing all of those academic articles? Now it explains why he's missing the deadline. <laughs> um, uh, Man, but, but, it's like, it occurs to me that here's this guy who, this European guy, right? this white guy, this English bloke who was born into a land that used to belong to those gods, used to belong to those demigods, used to belong to the fairies and the brownies and the dwarves and the elves and the, you know, like we used to, you know what I mean? You and I have talked about this, maybe on a podcast, who knows, but we've certainly talked about it, you know, between you and I, that flesh used to belong to those languages, used to belong to those stories, used to belong to those foods and those norms and mores and cultures and etc and it, i don't know it's interesting to me like i i can't help but to like think like oh man you're like you're quote unquote just he's quote unquote just being a philologist and he's quote unquote just reading these stories and he quote unquote has you know like a distance on it like intellectual emotional distance on it but through the medium of story and maybe this is telling you know maybe this is a even a good segue for that matter through the medium of story, he's able to connect to his heritage through this thing that would have formed the lifeblood of his ancestors and then bring it through, you know, like recontextualize it for a modern time in the form of a quote fantasy book that again, you know, appropriate for you that borders on religious uh, 100%. I think you <laughs> accurately described how he, how he uh, understood like what he was doing. And I think it's hard to make these kinds of um, inferences about people who are dead. Of course. You can't talk to them. Your only evidence is based on their writings and the recollections of people they knew. And almost everybody who ever actually met J.R.R. Tolkien is now dead. You know, most people have ne- never... The only member of the Lord of the Rings film cast who had met him in person was Christopher Lee uh, Saruman, which is very Interesting. Um, <laughs> and Saruman's, Saruman's the wizard that goes on to, to the dark side or whatever and gets his yeah. ass kicked. Yep. Right. Um, in short. <laughs> you know, that's not a bad way to put it. So you could say it, it's hard to make inferences. I personally believe, based on his writings, that Tolkien, both his fiction and like some of his nonfiction, uh, that, that Tolkien had experiences of what you'd call fairies or like the enchanted world. Like it seems fairly clear right. to me that he'd had some kind of embodied or like experiential encounter. I mean, he writes about having mystical experiences in some of his letters. It seems... To, my inference is that he had experiences which were really powerful to him and that helped him think about the relationship between the present and this sort of mythic or legendary past, which which has been bulldozed, right? Like, Totally. 
one of the things about being born in the modern era is that like we can't uncomplicatedly recover our ancestors like sense of like enchantment about the world right like we i think we can be enchanted i think we can absolutely find a reconnection of a sense to the land and to our heritage and to our history in a non-white supremacist way um <laughs> <laughs> <Asterix>. <laughs> Want to, want to attach a big caveat to that. Uh, I am not advocating for blood and soil uh, nationalism. If right, that were the right. case, all white people should get the fuck out of the United States. Um, <laughs> and you know, amongst themselves. <laughs> when my enemies fight, I win. Um, yeah. No, so I'm not. But to be clear, there's a we can't recover it in a naive way, but stories, and I think Tolkien believe this and I believe it, help us to find our way back into a sense of the world as something which is like, like beautiful and wonderful and like beyond our control and magical. Totally. And I, I wonder, and I'm just like projecting all over Tolkien because apparently this is the Tolkien show here in a minute. I want to hear <laughs> like some of your thoughts about the text and you know, where your work's yes. going, but it occurs to me, like, I wonder if, because I assume probably in the time that he was living, even though it's like the height of the Enlightenment, it's, you know, the in, the industrial areas era is booming, that to be a, quote, pagan, to have non-standard experiences, say, of fucking fairies or something, that probably would have been very, and he's like this upper middle class guy, like this intellectual, this uh, academic to do any of that probably would have been even more frowned upon than nowadays, right? That there wasn't the sense of pluralism or like spirituality, like um, new age spirituality, like there wasn't access points. And I wonder if simultaneously, I wonder if, you know, him sticking so close to Catholicism, I wonder if that was a little bit out of necessity, so to speak. But mm -hmm. then simultaneously on the other side of that is Catholicism it allows for such things like that. It allows for saints. It allows for some like ancestor veneration. It allows for some of the indigenous traditions of wherever the place may be to be integrated, you know, maybe anglicized or whatever, or Romanized, Hellenized, but nevertheless integrated. So I don't know. It's just, it's fascinating to kind of think about what formed the man and what, um, like not only culturally, but spiritually and what, I don't, I don't know why my brain's going to this place, but like what God was up to with J.R.R. Tolkien, you know? I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting, and then we can get to the text of sort of what my work is doing, but the time in which he lived, actually among people of his like social like class and sort of intellectual climate, mm -hmm. there were a lot of people who were playing with different forms of occultism, um, okay. This is you get the anthroposophists. You start to get this is um, you know this would be like theosophy. This would be theosophy. This would be you know Aleister Crowley and sort of the the beginning of right. the okay. you know, pagan movements. This is okay. Um, okay. I mean, I've got a I've got a tarot deck on my uh, desk next to me, and the Rider Waite tarot deck is you know that's early 1900s and that's coming out of sort of mm. eastern or uh, western okay. cultism so th th there's a okay. there's a whole um and that would have been how do you say polite company with upper middle class intellectual types uh, i mean it 
depends on your company, right? Uh, there were <laughs> there were militant atheists. There were. I mean, Tolkien. Tolkien was was friends. I mean, his group, the Inklings, which were kind of like his little you know literary cadre. Him and C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams and Owen Barfield and a couple of other guys. And you know, there was like most of them were Christians, but there was a lot of diversity within that Christianity. They were like. Charles Williams was an insane kind of like really heterodox Christian in a lot of ways and really into kind of what we'd call spiritualism. And, you know, that's, there were currents in the air. I mean, I don't think Tolkien would have gotten, was like interested in those things or would have signed off on them in a doctrinal way. But, but a sense of trying to reconnect with some like more embodied and like land-based and chanted like past was in the air people did not take kindly to the idea of a world like having all the meaning and like beauty sucked out of it by friggin' industrial capitalism. Like they, people did not and do not like that. Actually, it makes us feel hollow inside. <laughs> totally. Uh, so well, tell um, me, tell me a little bit about why do you love the texts? Plural. Why do you love the texts? And if you can use that as an access point to, what are you up to in PhD land and where is the muse currently seems to be taking you? Word. So God, there are so many reasons I love. I love every time I ask a question, you sigh, like almost like Aaron Eves level, just sigh. (laughs) Like you're like like, perspiring. (laughs) Where do I begin? How how does one answer? You know, how shall I be held accountable to the Lord, my God? Um, (laughs) uh, So there are so many things I love about all of Tolkien's writings. I think particularly the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Um, I I love all of it. I mean, I've read all of it. It's a massive amount of material, but I come back again and again to those books because uh, one of the things that really moves me about them is the way that particularly the Lord of the Rings like balances like just deep, deep sadness with Mm. a sense of hope like the thing about the Lord of the Rings is set during the third age of middle earth. And so all of these ancient stories of the elves and their wars and these kind of great heroes and, and, you know, cause cosmology and the battles of the gods and the sort of the ancestors of humanity have all been, have been fought. They've been played out. Right. And so when hobbits come on the scene, you're living in a world that's basically full of ruins. I mean, Middle Earth is very, I mean, your point about like spending five pages on a hillside. Yeah, because there's nothing in Middle Earth except trees and mountains and river valleys and these like, you know, very, it's almost post-apocalyptic, these sort of little settlements hundreds of miles away from one another. And the story hinges, of course, upon the, on the destruction of the One Ring, right? And defeating Sauron through the, not by force of arms, but by foregoing power rather than using it um Mm. which is frigging spectacular but there's there's this recognition is that the everyone who who joins in on this number one recognizes that they have it's very unlikely that they will win 
right? Like this is literally, I think, described in the mm. book as a fool's errand, like sending two unarmed hobbits into Mordor to go destroy <laughs> the, the ring of the enemy of the world, uh, of the novel's uh, great Satan, right? Like it's uh, insane. Oh, so good. It's so good. <laughs> it rules. It rules so hard. Um, or the, like, the, was it 12 dwarves in the mountain? Like they're going to... One, they're going to take it, 12 dwarves and the hobbit, they're going to take the fucking mountain back from the dragon, and then they're going to defend it against the fucking armies that are taking them. And it's not, in a way, how do you say, it's an honorable fight in a way, but another way, it's not, because they're little greedy bastards. Like, so good. (laughs) So good. Oh, when the eagles are coming, boy, I was was hopping out of my seat. God damn it. (laughs) Sorry, keep going. So good. And yeah. So this sense of hopeful hopelessness almost, right? This idea that we're going to do the right thing, even though we will almost certainly fail because the right thing is worth doing. And if we don't, there's no hope, right? If we do the right thing, there's a little, there's not much hope. If we do nothing, there's none. And this sense that, and we do that not because this is, I mean, this is really important is that, that Middle Earth is not a Christian world, right? There's a God, but God hasn't been involved in human affairs for a while. There are gods, but the gods haven't been involved in human affairs for a while. So if we're going to do this, it's not because we have any expectation that we're going to be rewarded in the afterlife or even any real expectation that this is going to like, we're going to survive. We do it because it's right and because to do anything else would be to give in to despair. Um, And we do it in the knowledge that even if we win, that much that is beautiful is going to pass out of Middle Earth. The elves are going to go across the sea. The dwarves are going to go into their mountains. Hobbits are going to dwindle out of existence. Humans are going to take over the world. And eventually it will become our world, the disenchanted world we know. But it's worth fighting for anyway. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I, uh, I feel moved. Yeah, well... Kudos. And, and that to me is, first of all, that's the world we live in. I feel like, mm. I mean, even, even those of us who are, I believe in a universal benevolence that is more powerful than any act of human smallness or forgetfulness. I don't know how that, I don't know how that universal benevolence acts in the everyday, right? Like, um, or I do when I'm paying attention, I do. But it's not like I can count on God to like bail me, bail us out of the catastrophes we've made for ourselves that, you know, in the face of a future, which even if we succeed, much that we knew will be lost. And I I don't mean that just in a political way. I mean that like in a like lived experience, like I have two small children way. I mean that like, I don't know what world these kids are going to grow up in. I can't quite imagine it, but it's worth like it's still worth having them. Like it's still worth like trying to do the right thing and growing a garden. I mean, Sam Gamgee is a gardener. Like, can you imagine any sort of like more perfect <laughs> job for a hobbit? You know, sort of. I'm yeah. going to. The world's falling apart, but I will. I, this is my plot. I will plant here. I will put seeds in the ground. I will trust that tomorrow will come because. I didn't mean to preach a sermon, but here we are. (laughs) Dude, I'm saying, take me to church. So good. Oh, that's, I was at some point through it. I was thinking, I was like, man, like, can you like 
preach this without it being on the nose, without it being ham-fisted, without it being cringe. Because the whole, like, one of the things that it reminded me of is that I was having this conversation recently with a friend and I was talking about honor and I was talking about nobility because apparently those are kind of things I talk about randomly, right? And I was telling my friend that, you know, I want to be creative, right? I get, I get a lot of, um, you know, like if I do something creative, it feels good, right? And if someone tells me I'm creative or something, it feels good. Like I feel, <laughs> it makes me feel like I have value, right? <laughs> However, I was telling my friend the other day <laughs> that if I had a pick though, funny enough that if I had a pick, say between creativity and nobility, or you could say honor, I'm liking the word honor right now. And to me, basically the same thing that I would pick honor, you know, I'd be an uncreative fucking schmuck that if I could be honorable, right? And it runs so deep in me. And I was talking a little bit about that and like how that, how that intersects with my background growing up and my relationship to the left, my relationship to the right, so on and so forth. Anyways, when you were preaching your inadvertent sermon, <laughs> one of the things that occurred to me was like, man, like that's a world in which honor is born, a world in which honor makes sense, a world in which like I do think like the way you described the um, Tolkien universe, it, it is, if not a one-to-one of our world, it's a damn good analogy. It's a damn good stand-in, you know, a damn good metaphor. And if we live in a world that has a lot of bleakness, which we do, right? If we live in a world where if we do the math, we don't really have a good shot at overthrowing fucking Sauron and the fucking tyrants, you know what I mean? But if we live in a world, like if you live in that world, you could just like give the fuck up, right? But we see in Gimli and in Legolas and in Frodo and in Gandalf and in Sam and in Pippin and so on and so forth, right? We see in them these various different ways that they've chosen honor, basically, you know, in various different ways, whether Sam and his love for Frodo Frodo just being like the everyman and I guess being like half pure of heart, pure of heart, half piece of shit. Love it. <laughs> you know, um, Gandalf embodying wisdom, so on and so forth. But there's this context for, I don't know, like that makes sense, right? Because because how else would you view the world, right? Like, would you just go full-blown nihilism or would you be like fucking Pollyanna, right? Like, no, like it, we are in a fucked up position. And, and if you want to improve a, a humanity's lots, it's, it probably ain't going to work, but you do it anyways. And it, one of the things I was thinking earlier, cause you were saying that, um, it's not a Christian world. Like God's not super involved in the world. But one of the things that occurred to me when you said that was that it seems like a lot of the times they're doing it for each other. They're doing it for their land and for their people. And this like really righteous way, not in this dwarves versus elves or elves versus humans. Like, no, the dwarves owe something to their mountain. They owe something to, they refer to, they're the son of the son of the sun. Like they have this sense of place and this sense of belonging and they go and they will give their life for something fucking larger than themselves, but also something imminent, not transcendent. I mean, it is, it's transcendent as well, of course, but something imminent, you know, like, like Sam and fucking Frodo, like just the imminence of that love between the two boys. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. Is that it's 
like I said, like there's a chance for making the world a better place, but there's also, yeah, like the quality of our like, like love for one another, you know, and of our love for the land that even a partial victory is better than total defeat because, you know, the Shire is still there, right? Because, yeah, because yeah. I mean, and, and so this this deep sense. I mean, your your point about imminence versus transcendence is. I was literally working on a, a paper presentation about that earlier today. This idea that one of the reasons I think the story can be so powerful for people who aren't Catholic or aren't Christian or don't have a theological like transcendence isn't a, isn't an important theological belief to them is precisely because the story doesn't require it. Right? These characters do these things out of love for each other and the world they share and a sense that, you know, a sense of hope, even if it is uh, the hope for the future comes to fruition outside the scope of their own lives. Right. That's the transcendent part of it. Um, It's not theological transcendence. It doesn't require you to believe that if you have faith in Jesus Christ and act like a good person, someday God will reward you. It's a faith that is, based embedded in the world as it is a world that is again enchanted and worth defending and it doesn't mean you can't have a christian frame on that it doesn't mean you can't be a christian and do that or does but you don't have to be you could be a muslim and do that you you could be a secularist and do that conceivably um you know you could be a human and do that right it's an invitation (laughs) to be to be human i don't know try it (laughs) what do you think what do you think is there a limitation to story? Is there something that religion can do that story can't? The, and the reason why I ask, and I'll yeah. give you more time for cognitive gears and such, and sighing, and um, if you want to rip and tear at sackcloth, that's oh, it's the offer's always on the table. And I've always got some in the closet. <laughs> for just such skeleton. occasions <laughs> skeleton a pile of skeletons fall out which was there when I moved it the reason why I ask is you know I read so like I read The Hobbit the other day right and I'm I'm jumping I'm like jumping up and down and pounding my fist in the air and I don't. I guess I don't have better context for. I mean, I'd have to find it. I'm sure I could find it, but I was like, "Man, story's so great." And then I was, and I was like, "Oh, I wish I, I wish I could keep this. I wish we could all keep this." But there, there's a way in which we take religion seriously that we don't take story seriously, even as, even as story moves us sometimes even more profoundly and more. How do you say unobtrusively, more efficiently, more effectively. But yes, can religion do something that story can't, Doctor? So, I mean, this this is the crux of my PhD researchers. I want to figure out that thing that you just asked. So, one of the things that I think religion does, which story does implicitly, right? Like religion actually draws your attention to the transcendent. It draws your attention to. It draws your attention to the idea that like this story isn't just like a, it isn't just about these characters. It isn't just about this world. And it isn't even just about your emotional reaction to it. This is something like you make a claim that this story says something true about what it means to be in the world. Right. And again, many stories do that religion, a religious story 
or a sense of religion takes that and says, okay, now live your life inside that story, right? Like that's, in my, in my research, the emerging thing that seems to me different between a religious story, quote unquote, and a non-religious story, quote unquote, is not, it's not fundamentally about what happens in the story, right? Like I don't, if you look at, if you look at the gospels, they, you could read them as fantasy, right? Like you could read them. Absolutely. I mean, particularly if you weren't a Christian, you could say, oh yeah, I know there's magic happening and there's this whole like background cosmology that I as a non-Christian do not understand, but I trust that it's in the background, um, you know, um, you, you could read it as fantasy literature if you wanted to, but the Lord of the Rings doesn't ask you to then make it the story by which you tell your life. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that stories like the Lord of the Rings can start to do that for people. You know, I, um, you were at my ordination. I had a, a chunk of the Lord of the Rings was one of the readings there. Right. Like, yeah. Really, a chunk of the Lord of the Rings where Sam and Frodo talk about the nature of story and what it means to live your life inside a story. And I did that for a reason, <laughs> because that is one of the most important pieces of prose in the world to me. Um, but also because that says something important about what I think religion is doing, is it's inviting us into this story, into a bigger story, into... or. Maybe not into a specific story. I mean, I think into like in the grandest possible sense of what a story could be, but it's inviting us to live our lives as if they were stories that had a hopeful ending, right? And when you do that, right? I mean, one of the things about stories is that they are these, there are these powerful ways by which we create meaning. We, we give our lives a sense of direction and purpose. And they are also always provisional. Right? Like no story is absolute. Like, I mean, I think Neil Donald Walsh, who is a, an important spiritual teacher for both of us, talks about the need to like let go of your stories. You are not your story. You are not just that. Like there's more to being human than any given story we can tell about ourselves. But I believe we need stories in order to be fully human, even if we can hold at a greater level that they're always provisional or they're always open to amendment or God is just a better storyteller than I am. And they have twists and turns in mind that I couldn't fathom. And that from the perspective of being a character are annoying as shit. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's sort of my emerging answer for like what makes a story religious or not. One of the things that occurred to me while you were talking, answering the question about, what's the difference between a story and religion? Like how do they function differently basically? And you and I have talked about as have many other people that have meditated on such things, the difference between the priest and the prophet. Mm -hmm. So the priest is someone who's in the middle of the city and they're integrated into the city and they're integrated into the religious life. And they are a bearer of the codified religious life of the ideological life, the cultural life, the aesthetic life of their people. And the prophet <laughs> is tearing sackcloth on the edge of the city, just like whining and running their mouth and being super duper upset, but challenging it, right? So the priest conserves and the prophet challenges and you, and you have to have both, right? And people will take the priest seriously because they're the priest, right? Of course you take the priest seriously. They have all this social capital and they've been objectivated, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it's a way to belong. Like we live in this story. Like, of course, of course we have to listen to this. 
but the prophet has their job as well to challenge that story and to and probably never see the fruits of it honestly like it's only until you know after they pass usually that that the culture is able to take it take them seriously and to integrate it basically so it occurs to me that maybe like religion and story similar that religion is in the center of the culture it is this codified thing it is this reasonably stabilized thing like we've been able to stabilize the story because you were saying like a story is always provisional but they've been able to stabilize the story whereas our novelists and our authors and our writers and our storytellers are on the edge our, i mean our musicians our poets you know etc they're on the edge of that and they're tearing at the seams back to the sackcloth metaphor they're tearing at the seams and sometimes it's messy and sometimes it's actually goddamn unhelpful <laughs> you know um you know we can be we can be made larger by stories we can also be torn down by stories for that matter oh yeah absolutely they can they're generative and enchanting and also destructive absolutely um I mean, I love the I love the sort of dual function that you're bringing out because I think that like a really good story is one that kind of does both at the same time, right? Yeah. Like one one that has the capacity to expand and change as new as new life as new experiences force it to, right? like one that doesn't take it that doesn't remain static and and chain you in a particular way of thinking about yourself in the world, but that actually gives you the tools you need, like a good religious story or a good novel for that matter, gives you the tools you need to like go, go on plot digressions, right? Go in other directions, let the characters yourself and others, the world take on a life of their own. Yeah. It occurs to me because, you know, I was talking about the prophet and the priest thing and I, an image was coming to me. Like I was seeing, I was seeing the city. I was seeing the priest. I was seeing the prophet. And then you said something to the effect of it's best when it can be both, you know, it can both be a stabilizing force as well as a challenging generative um, dynamic, you know, force. And the thing that occurred to me is like, Oh, like what's in between there. And, and the thing that occurred to me was the bard that you've got the priest in the fucking temple with all the fancy vestments and all the money changers and all that bullshit. <laughs> You've got the crazy guy on the edge of town who's, he might be crazy. He might be touched by God. Unclear. <laughs> uh, they might be crazy. They might be touched by God. Unclear. Could be both. Could be both. I, I was going to say those things are often <laughs> indistinguishable. <laughs> But then you have the bard in the middle, in the agora, if you will, in the middle, and the bard obviously isn't given the isn't given the same weight as the priest of whatever the bard says is now like a fucking judicial litigation or whatever. But he's also not a cra- he or she or they ain't a fucking crazy person that may not make it. Like there, there's a place for them there, and um, maybe that's what. Maybe that's what Tolkien did, you know, in a long line of bards that he told a fucking story that was situated between those two places that people could listen to and be like, oh, it's an entertaining story, but walk away. Gosh, I don't know. <sighs> maybe they don't walk away converted and maybe they don't walk away with the terror of God from, you know, prophet, but they walk away with a little dose of honor, a little dose of love, of friendship, of chivalry, of 
sacrifice of all the things that a story can give us, you know, the, the stuff that is life. And I think you do a pretty good job of that, my good friend. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. One of the reasons that I decided I was going to stop doing parish ministry for a while and spend three and a half years trying to figure this Lord of the Rings thing out um, <laughs> as if I will figure it out. Right. Was precisely because I found myself like deeply excited to share this story with my kids. Like I wanted them to have a, cause my dad shared it with me. Right. Like I wanted, there was this sense of like narrative transmission the sense that like this had been so important to my dad and it became so important to me. And now I wanted to like, to give it to my kids and to have it be part of their story too. And I, and I, I looked at that and I was like, wow, that's a lot like what people do with religion. Um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, totally. and, and, and for me as a Christian, I mean, my spouse and the kid's mom is Jewish. And like, I found that I was much more excited to give them Judaism and the Lord of the Rings than I was to give them Christianity. Uh, it's going to be honest. And I was like, Oh, I should probably look at that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that, that, that seems, that seems really important to like dig into. Like, why would I be more excited about these other two re- religious or semi-religious or secondarily religious stories, but not the one that, that I call home. And there, I mean, that's, God, we don't have time to, to dig into that exactly. But it was something that I noticed of, oh yeah, this is a story that has meant the world to me and that helps me like frame my sense of what it means to be like, saying a good person sounds so moralistic, you know, but like <laughs> to be like, not a good person in like a moral or even an ethical sense, but in like a, like a person, like yeah. embedded in the land and in, in relationships and in stories. And then a sense of, yeah, like dignity and honor and hope. So I figured I would try to figure out why, why that was, why was this so important to me that I made it the Lord of the Rings, the first words I ever read aloud to both of my children. That's awesome. It occurs to me, you know, an earlier topic, you know, I'd asked about the difference between story and religion. And I was talking about having read, you know, The Hobbit. And I guess I didn't finish my thought, but almost being disappointed in a way that like, oh, this is so good. I'm so moved by this. Why can't this be my religion, so to speak? Right. And it it, it can't because it just can't. But the thing that occurred to me is like, what would it look like to... Like the God that is truth, the God that is sacrifice, the God that is justice, the God that is honor, so on and so forth. These various different aspects of God. What if they were alive in story? You know, and it's not like this isn't a religious story. We're not saying it historically happened. We're not saying this is the cosmology we live in, but the hand of of truth did touch it. The hand of justice did touch it. The hand of friendship did touch it. The hand of sacrifice did touch it. And being able to let that be the anchor point back of like, Oh, I'm stirred. And it's not just a, (laughs) it's not just like an atheistic epiphenomenon. No, I'm stirred because goddamn Platonism. Like there is, there's a true form up there and it has broke through the page, so to speak. And I guess I'm saying a lot about my own theology and cosmology when I say this, like the way that I kind of frame the universe. But yeah, well, I, don't know, I guess I'm just I'm just musing out loud, sire. Well, for what it's worth, my my friend Jolkin, Rolkin, Rolkin, Tolkien is 100% <laughs> on board with you. Actually, he wrote an essay called On Fairy Stories, where that's that's kind of the climax of it. It's this idea that mm. 
that for him, that meant that it partook of like the, the, the primary truth of Christianity, but the idea that all of our stories, like these bits of truth, we find in them, the truth of sacrifice, of honor, of, of wonder, of enchantment, that that's not, that's not, we're not making it up. Like that's real. We're seeing it. The story is, is putting us in touch with something that is genuinely yeah. real at a deeper level. And, you know, and I, mm. I think that's true. I think religious stories do that. Being a pluralist, I believe that all religious stories do that, but don't have a monopoly on the truth they're putting yeah. us in touch with. Christianity is a story that works really well for me, but doesn't have to be everybody's. Lord of the Rings is also a story that works really well for me, but doesn't have to be everybody's. Yeah. I'd mentioned the, uh, the anime that I'm watching, Record of Ragnarok. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... A different thing from the show that, you know, from what I brought up earlier, I watched the episode last night, a little bit of spoilers for folks. If anyone watches it, um, it's round three, round three of a possible 13 rounds and it's Poseidon anime Poseidon. <laughs> Who's like the like Dionysian angsty. How do you say like derisive condescending he's condescension incarnate. And so it's Poseidon. And then there's this samurai dude, this historical guy. I, for, I forget the guy's name. I guess he wasn't samurai. Forgive me. This this swordsman, this sword fighter, uh, historical guy. And there's the long fight. It took two or three episodes for the fight because it's anime, right? <laughs> and, um, and God, like he's been the most lovable character so far on the human side. And his whole thing was – like the world's best loser or something like that. So his whole life, he never won a fight that he, a sword fight. So he would like get in a fight with somebody. He would see that he was about to lose and he would surrender. And then he would go off into the fucking woods and he would like train, 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 train. And he would figure out how to beat the guy, but he would never go back and beat the guy and he would move on and he would do the same thing. He would meet a guy. He'd be bested by the guy. He would surrender. And then he goes into the woods, train, 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 trains, right? And so he goes through the whole lineage of um, you know people in his his era. He ends up losing a fight against Muhashi, Mushashi. I remember that fellow's name. So he loses that fight. And then he goes to the afterlife. So he dies. He goes to the afterlife. And he trains for the next thousand fucking years or whatever. Like he is just like one-pointed. He wanted to be um, – I think it's called the one under the sun, the greatest one under the sun, which I think is like some title of like a swordsman that like the best swordsman ever. And so you got all this going on, right? He's never won a fucking fight, but he's super earnest. And I'm just like really fucking liking this guy. But Poseidon's like literally fucking like Zeus's older brother. Poseidon's like the bad bitch, the OG, and he's a deity, right? And so they're fighting, they're fighting, fighting. But then near the end, they do this narrative little twist. The the writers, the producers, the people who made the show, they do this interesting narrative twist, which it was always there, but they bring it forward for us that because like homeboy's about to lose, right? He's about to die. Yeah. And then basically all of the people, starting with his sensei, starting with his master, but then all the people, all of his previous foes, all of his previous opponents, his combatants, they like show up in this sort of vision type thing. And basically what we realize and what he realizes is like, oh, he's building, he's standing on the shoulder of giants. Yeah. That he is a, he's a culmination of this whole tradition of Japanese swordsmanship. 
and this culmination of battles and losses and all this shit. And he goes out there and he fucking defeats Poseidon. It's our first win. It's our first W. More spoilers, yeah. guys. It's our first W for the fucking humans. We were getting our ass kicked. <laughs> it was 2-0 <laughs> or 0-2, depending on how you want to frame it. <laughs> we were fucking losing, man. And he gets out there and he gets it done. And he's... And it's just, I felt really moved by it. Like, it's like, he's like, he's the most interesting character so far. The guy who's just lost his whole life, but he so loves his craft and he so loves his opponents. Like the people who beat him that he basically transcended. Basically he transcended and was able to cut down like Poseidon's whole thing was that he was perfect. Like he wouldn't even look people in the eyes, you know, sure. like he wouldn't look, he wouldn't look another deity in the eyes. Like he was just. He said he was born perfect. The gods were born perfect. They were always perfect. And then putting that over and against the skill acquisition, the standing on the shoulders of giants, the community, the et cetera, of the swordsmen, like, it was just so good. And I forget why <laughs> I brought this up, but goodness gracious, it was so good. Yeah, so story. <laughs> I, think, I think that's the moral of my story is story. Yo, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, I think it was literally my internet. Like, not Zencaster, not you. I think it was literally my internet. Oh, my God. Um, it says Except it's for still recording. I'm so fucking happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, I'll have to edit all that shit out. Yo, so I was just having internet issues. Friends who are, who are listening to this, also forgive me because there's a bunch of noise in the background earlier. We'll see if it comes out in the edits. Yeah, I was talking about an anime. I don't know how much of that was lost. I'll, again, I'll figure that out in the edits. Let's go ahead and move towards wrapping this thing up. So, Tom, a couple of questions. Yep. One, I think you might have already answered this, but one, like, where's the research going or what's um, where's it going broadly? Or maybe there's one little granular thing that's super fucking interesting, some little rabbit hole you're going down. If you could only read one fiction book of Tolkien – which one would it be? And I'm chopping Lord of the Rings into three. And then if you could only read one nonfiction book, because I literally just realized the other fucking day he's got nonfiction, which one would it be? Would you recommend, say for me, for example? Sure. I'll answer your first question first, because numbers. Math. Math. Uh, so the research is going in all sorts of directions. A big piece of it, though, is that I don't want to just theorize about how people find spiritual meaning in fiction, right? Like I want to actually like go ask some people, uh, you know, like to tell their stories and to offer how, if and how the Lord of the Rings has been important in their lives. So that's, you know, the, the research, I'm building out this sort of theoretical apparatus and this theological apparatus and these ways of thinking about texts and religion and fandom and the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien. But the crux of my actual research project is to invite other people to do interviews with me to talk about what it's meant to them and to listen closely and to analyze, you know, dialogically what is what does the story mean to people? And what does the story mean to people who aren't religious or who don't describe themselves as religious? Maybe it's spiritual but not religious. Maybe it's an atheist or an agnostic or somebody who just doesn't have a label for it. Um, so that's that's where the research is headed, particularly in the you know, sort of looking ahead in the next several months. Uh, that's exciting. 
Yeah, it is. Um, rather than telling stories about other people, letting them tell their own stories. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. So, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. Got, man, I don't know if any of my listeners are considering doing a PhD, but it's an enormous amount of work. You have to spend so much time in your head reading and thinking and writing. It's awesome, but you got to know you're going to spend your entire life for several years doing this. And if you uh, if you want to have a social life, I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to think really hard about something that's really cool and that gets you super excited, then absolutely go do it. I'm having a great time. So in answer to your question about what books to read from Tolkien, I mean, since you've chopped The Lord of the Rings into three books, it makes it harder, Aaron. But I'd say The Hobbit. I think The Hobbit is his most accessible work. I think you don't have to have read literally anything else by him to get into it. And if you're anything like me and Aaron, you'll like it so much that The Lord of the Rings will sort of happen naturally. Um, I, th- I I love The Lord of the Rings even more than The Hobbit. But if you have to read just one, it's a perfect little 300-page adventure. So highly recommended. As for nonfiction, I would recommend his essay on fairy stories. It's Tolkien's. What's because I'm 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 going to look into it. What's the? Do you know the title of it? Yeah, it, it's called On Fairy Stories. Gotcha. And it's his as close to a literary manifesto as he ever got. It's his defense of fantasy as a genre and his sort of theology. Oh, that sounds and story. great. Rule is pretty hard. Um, <laughs> it's it sounds like um what was that? I wrote a fucking essay. I, I think you co-wrote it with me or something like something about dragons and mythic theater, some shit like that. I think it was for theater of the oppressed, and it was basically like us defending mythic theater. <laughs> yeah, uh, yelling church in a crowded theater, maybe or yelling fire uh, in a crowded church. I don't remember the particular metaphor, yeah. but it was something like that. Yelling theater, something like that. Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> On fairy stories. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to read it. Yeah, it's good. Man, I could talk about this forever, but this was good. Thanks for having me on to yammer about this stuff. No, totally. Yeah, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime because I'm glad to always talk about Tolkien stuff. And, and it goes – I mean, the reason why you're doing the PhD presumably is that it's not just the story. It's where it takes you, right? the state of mind it puts you in the things it causes you to remember. So it's like, Oh, we start talking about this and I'm, <laughs> you know, it takes me back to like, like being as a kid, I love the King Arthur stories and that stuff just always spoke to me like fantasy. And it just always spoke to me. It, it's inspiring. Right. And then just story like more broadly, like thinking about Tolkien and thinking about being a storyteller, it's just super inspiring. And obviously I love talking to you. So yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime, my friend word all right friends well we'll see how post-production goes and uh see how much my conversation about the anime comes through but again it's been a pleasure glad to have spoke to y'all and yeah we'll see you next time cheers cheers